Uh, today is the day that 1995 ends. I couldn't help but get up and read the comics. BC had a word for us, uh, so maybe we'll read this and say amen and go home. A year, a year can be made up of 52 weeks or 365 days or 24 hours of ticking and talking or digital clicks nowadays. A year can go by like a sty in your eye or like quicksilver poured from a cup. But whatever you call it, by midnight tonight, you will find you have used it all up. You know, as I think of uh, 1995, some of you folks uh, are thinking, good riddance, that was a terrible year. Let's get on with the new. And then there's others of us in here that are thinking, you know, 1995 wasn't quite so bad. It was good to us and our family. I hope that 96 will bring the good fortune that 95 did. And then there's fellows like Rick Majoris, who is the uh, head football or head basketball coach for the University of Utah, who says everyone is worried about this year's economy. Hey, my hairline's in recession, my waistline's in inflation, and I'm in total depression. <laughs> well, I don't know what this new year is going to bring, but I do believe that uh, for me and for you, that what our Lord wants more than anything else is to have us listen to Him. To have us understand what his calling is. To know him more intimately and deeply so that when 96 ends, we can say, you know, I think I heard the voice of God in a very special way. And I heard him calling me to be something new and fresh and different. Well, sometimes it takes what I call crashing encounters with God to shake up our world so that we will stop dead in our tracks to listen to that still, small, gentle voice that speaks to us every day. As I look back on my life, I can point to four or five uh, unique crashing encounters that have either stretched me or broken me to some degree. Some of those encounters even caused me to believe that I was going off the deep end. But then I decided it was better to go off the deep end with God than the shallow end without Him. You see, there are many churches and many people in our culture today that go off the shallow end because they're afraid of the spiritual depths that I believe await us as we get to know God. About six years ago, I went off the deep end. I had been enjoying uh, youth ministry for several years, a great bunch of kids. I'd like to blame burnout on them, but I can't. Uh, Great staff, but ministry and life got to be pretty tough. And I entered uh, uh, what uh, St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. My father had died that year. If that wasn't enough, there was some incredible uh, temptations that sprung up in my life that I had uh, just a barrage of temptations that came my way at at that moment. They reared its ugly head, and I I did battle with them. I won some. I lost a few. My ability to cope with what I, you know, assume was just the the natural stress loads of life uh, became more and more difficult for me. Uh, The phone would ring at home or in the office, and the, the tension in my neck and my shoulders would just grip me. 
so finally, matter of fact, I believe it was Carolyn Roper one day came by the office, and I thought I was having the big one, you know, the big cardiac one. It was just a tightness in my chest, and so Carolyn, bless her heart, she took me down to the doctor. <clears throat> After a series of tests, I found out, well, my ticker was great, but I was having what was called an anxiety attack. I said, Doc, you got to be kidding. Uh, anxiety attacks, those aren't for people like me. The strong said, no, you have an anxiety attacks. As you can see, I'd been raised with a philosophy of life that said, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So I was just going to pull up my bootstraps and keep on going. But God had other plans. Well, about that same time, there was a youth pastors conference in Estes Park, Colorado. I thought, what a great chance to get away from the hustle and bustle. And I'll just fly to, to, uh, to Colorado Springs or Estes Park on your expense and uh, church's expense. So Wayne Yamamoto, he decided to go along, take care of me. We, we hopped on that plane and we flew. And about 500 miles from here, about 15,000 feet altitude, you know, I'm away from all the stress. I made the mistake, though, and I, I, I pulled out one of my youth workers' magazines. And I started reading about youth ministry. And right there on that plane, my body and my mind decide they want to have an anxiety attack. And, you know, I tried to, to talk the stewardess out of a parachute, but she would not let me have one. <laughs> you see, when you have an anxiety attack at about 15,000 feet, you don't want to be on that plane. You want to be on the ground. You want to be away from people and away from the noises and the outer distractions that triggered some of those attacks. Well, as you can see, I made it to the ground, and I went to that conference. Well, while I was there, uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks was the keynote speaker. We've had Howie here several years, and what a blessing that man has been, a godly saint. And so one day I said, Howie, can I have some of your time? He said, sure. If you don't mind walking, Dennis, I have to have my afternoon walk. You can walk with me. So we went for a stroll, and I began to lay out for him just what I was going through, and, and uh, he asked me a series of penetrating questions. And uh, finally, uh, he said this. He said, Dennis, how much time are you getting alone with God? Well, I almost laughed out loud and said, Howie. See, I figured by that time I could call him Howie because he had asked me all these deep, penetrating questions. Now I feel like a soul brother with Howard Hendricks. <laughs> I said, Howie, I don't have time for to be alone and quiet. I mean, my life is rushing from one problem or program to another, you know, active with teenagers. I said, Howie, when I get alone, I, I'm so tired I fall asleep. Well, he said, Dennis, you need to go home and you need to share with David and you need to talk to the staff and there's lots of things you probably need to do and, and he mentioned, you know, the idea of some counseling and some better management of time, uh, saying no to a few things that I had trouble saying no to, but he said the most important thing you can do, Dennis, when you go home is you can get alone with God and let him surprise you, let him heal you of the pain you're in right now. Let God's voice, his calling, present a healing touch in your life. I ran across this quote last week. It says, in order to lift others, you first need a personal lift. Let me tell you, folks, I needed a, a very personal lift six years ago. The quote goes on to say, you're not going to get it from the outside. You know, it's just too much, too busy out there. He says, it's going to have to come from your private walk with God. Well, I returned home uh, through the aid of some counseling, through some medication, through lots of love from my family, 
And as I look out in this audience, through lots of your love, I had a, a senior high staff at the time that just surrounded me with love because I needed a break. Because I was broken. But you know, if I had to give up all that other love and that good attention folks gave me, the one thing I would not give up was the time that I began to establish with reconnecting with the intimacy and the love and the voice that comes only from our Father. Now, there are many people in the Bible that uh, walk that road, but this morning I want us to just briefly look at one. Uh, if you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. Many of you are familiar with this story. We've taught this passage several times, and I, I hope that this morning that there is a fresh look because I think that we are going to have an opportunity to learn from the life of Elijah how to get alone with God. Many of you remember the, the historical background here. Ahab had become king of Israel. His father, Omri, uh, had, had established an alliance with Ethbaal, the king of Tyre and Sidon. And so to make that alliance work, he, he thought he would seal it with the marriage of his son, Ahab, to Ethbaal's daughter, Jezebel, that kind, old, no, not so, is she, that old, wicked, wicked lady who became Ahab's wife. Because Jezebel's influence on Ahab, had, uh, they had imported the Canaanite gods of Baal, the Phoenician gods. They had constructed a temple in the city of Samaria in which Omri, Ahab's father, had built. He built the city of Samaria. And so God raised up Ahab, this first of major prophets, I mean Elijah, this first of the major prophets, to come and confront both Ahab and Jezebel's wickedness with these Baal prophets. And so what he did is he he designed a, a, a confrontation, a showdown, so to speak, where all of the Baal prophets, 450 plus, would meet on Mount Carmel by the sea. Nice place to have a little showdown. And he instructed the Baal prophets, you fellows, go ahead and, and build your altar with wood and whatever, and then you slaughter this bull, put the meat on the altar, and then you cry out to your gods, and I'll do the same after you've had your turn, and we'll see whose God is really God. You see, Elijah had had enough of the shallow depths of the people of Israel and their spiritual walk, so let's get down to discovering who the real God is here. And so the, the Baal prophets, they go about crying out, praying and slashing themselves, and nothing happens. So up steps Elijah, and he quietly prays to the true God of Israel. And the scriptures tell us that fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. Not only did it burn up the sacrifice, listen, this burned up the wood, the stones, the soil, and it even licked up the water. Remember that Elijah poured the water over just to make sure there wasn't any hanky-panky and somebody was lighting the match underneath the wood? Burned it all up. Of course, when the people saw that, they fell flat on their face and they said, The Lord, He is God. They repeated that twice. And we would, too, had we been there at the display of such an almighty God. And that leads us into our story for this morning. Verse 1 says, Now Ahab told Jezebel, obviously Jezebel was not present on Mount Carmel to witness this event. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. 
verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid, and of course, who wouldn't be? And he ran for his life. Let's stop there for just a moment and examine that one verse. Jezebel puts a contract on Elijah's head. Ahab was just a figure, a political figure, but it was Jezebel who wielded the authority and power in that kingly family. And when she spoke, she turned people's heads. And when she said that she was about to kill Elijah, she meant it. And Elijah understood that. He knew that. This was no idle threat. This woman was going to come after this man with all the vengeance that she possessed. So he runs for his life. When people are threatened by other people, we have one of two responses, don't we? We can either fight or flee, and Elijah fled. He was a man on the run. And I believe life, though, has a way of causing us all to run. I've spoken with many of you over the past several years that I've been here at Cole, and and you've told me just how busy your lives are. I see you passing like ships in the night, taking one child to soccer practice and another to drill team. and, And, oh, it's busy, isn't it, out there? Many of you are parents that have, both of you need to work to help pay the bills. Uh, moms, you're busy maybe working outside the home as well as inside the home. You're nurturing the children. There's cleaning, there's cooking, there's sewing. And then on top of all that, look at all the meetings we go to. There's homeowners associations meetings and school board meetings and coaches meetings and Bible studies and volunteer work. And then just to have a little bit of fun in the week, you throw in a couple of racquetball games or a trip to the mall or... And let's don't forget those NFL Sundays and Monday night football to try to have a little fun. And if that doesn't make you tired, put yourself in the the dear shoes of our single parent moms and dads. They do all of that and they do it alone. We are a culture that is on the run. Because our lives are typically overfilled lives, And because we are surrounded with so much outer noise and distractions, it really becomes truly hard to hear the still small voice of God, doesn't it? I was reading Henry now this past couple of weeks, and he says this. He says, we have often become become deaf, unable to know when God calls us, and unable to understand in which direction he is calling us. He goes on to say that we live absurd lives lives absurd lives in the word absurd we find the latin word absurdus which means death it means to be out of tune and because of these absurd lives that we live because we are we are spiritually deaf to his voice we need a spiritual discipline that is going to require, I believe, a gut check. Not many people pursue it. We miss out on a very valuable spiritual discipline of connecting with God in a deep way. We need to learn how to listen to God, who I believe is constantly speaking to us, but whom we seldom hear. My family tells me that I've lost some of my hearing over the years. I deny it, of course. They say I speak too loud on the phone. 
And those of you that have called me, you know, I'm sure you know that I don't speak too loud. But last week, I, I called the McMahon family, Bruce and Val McMahon. They were helping out with a Sunday evening Christmas service. And Caitlin, their daughter, answered the phone. So I chatted with Caitlin for a while. We had a great conversation. I said, well, let me talk to mom or dad. So Valerie came on the phone, and she chuckled out loud. And I, I said, what's up? She said, Dennis, i got to tell you something funny. And I said, well, what, what's, what's, what's happening here? She says, well, I spoke with Caitlin. And she said, you know when Dennis calls? He speaks loud. Well, see, that's what happens when you've been a miner for many years and you blow things up and you like to ride motorcycles and shoot loud guns. It has a way of deafening the physical eardrums, but you see the outer distractions and the outer noise of life also damage the spiritual hearing aspect as well, don't they? And see, when we can't hear, it's very difficult to know what God has for us, what God is calling us to. But when we learn to listen, I believe that that's when we learn to become obedient. The word obedient comes from another Latin word, which means to listen. And so the spiritual discipline of listening uh, to God is necessary in order for us to move from a chaotic lifestyle, one of outward noise, inward stress, uh, the noisy worries of life, to an obedient inner place of peace. A place where we can listen to God and follow His directives. You see, our our Lord's life was like that, wasn't it? Jesus led a life of obedience. He was always listening to the Father, always attentive to His voice, alert for His directions. Jesus is what we would call in our vernacular all ears. And that's what we need to become. All ears to that still, small, gentle voice. Now, I believe Elijah was a man much like our Lord. He led a life of obedience, didn't he? He was a godly man, as I mentioned earlier. He was the first of the major prophets, and he did have an impact on his nation. But I believe that in this story, we see for a brief time anyway, even after this mighty victory over the Baal prophets, I believe that that Elijah succumbed to the outer noises of his culture, of his society, Specifically, the noise that Jezebel was making. And he ran for his life rather than moving into the spiritual discipline of being quiet before God. And that running from Jezebel and from those outer noises wore him out. Notice verse 4 and 5. When he came to Beersheba, which was about 70 miles south of Jerusalem... He left his servant there while he he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I think what Elijah had in mind with that phrase is, I haven't done any more to impact this nation than the rest of the prophets that went before me, so let's call it quits, Lord. Let's just do it right now. Take me. Take me home. We've all been there, haven't we? Well, he ate and drank, and then he lay down and slept. You see, Elijah, because of the inner chaos that had been created by the outer noise of his life, lost perspective, didn't he? And you see, six years ago, I lost perspective. Life, to me, had worn me out. I was in a state of burnout. I wanted to toss in the towel. I wanted to call it quits. 
And you know, I'll bet that 1995 was like that for some of you. You've been running, you've been playing hard, you've been working hard. The outer noises and the outer distractions of this life have overtaken you, and you're all worn out. And you're entering 1996 worn out, but I think that the promise that we have from this passage allows us to enter 1996 by being refreshed and restored to good health by listening to that small voice. Let's read 7 and 9. 7 through 9. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, just another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Elijah, now refreshed by food and drink and some sleep, he travels some... Commentaries tell us that he traveled probably over 250 miles, just 40 days and 40 nights, to get to this mountain where he could crawl into this cave. And notice that uh, to have the intimacy with God, to be able to, to hear God's voice above all the other noises that was distracting him, Elijah needed two things. He needed time, and he needed quiet. And so he, he finds this cave, he crawls into it to learn from God, doesn't he? Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And that verse really should shape what those times of being alone with God are like. You see, stillness with God can actually energize us. It can give us strength to go on. And an extended time with God, being alone with Him, can prepare us for what He's calling us to be and what He is calling us to do. Without solitude, I believe that it is virtually impossible to live the spiritual life. And for you young people here, I know that that's a very difficult concept to understand. As we grow older, we recognize, and I believe these older white-haired saints that I'm, I'm speaking to, and I see them nodding their heads, they understand the joy and the beauty and the glory of getting alone with God for extended periods of quiet you begin to experience that. You'll never go back to the old way of living in that, that life, lifestyle. You see, we are in a partnership with God, aren't we? Those of us here that have received Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we partnered up with God when we did that, when we made that commitment. And just as any of you businessmen or women know that you have business meetings to take care of business. If you failed to do that, your investments would fail as well. So if we believe that God is not only actively seeking us to heal, to teach, to direct, and to guide, we need to set aside time alone with Him and, and with Him alone. Undivided attention given to Him. That's why our Lord says, go into your private room or your closet, and when you have shut the door, pray to the Father who is in that secret place. We cannot afford not to meet with God in 1996 to be alone with Him. But it's not easy, is it? There's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of distractions. One of my greatest joys as well as my greatest challenges in youth ministry was to get a, a young teenage fella off by himself someplace in the wilderness. My strategy was to invite him to go fishing or hunting or motorcycle riding or something. And they thought we were just going out for fun. But see, underneath that plan was to get them alone with God. 
And that's a scary place for a young person who's, you know, the technology of today, we've got them plugged into everything. Every time they go someplace, a lot of times you see them plugged in their CD players. I mean, even our cars talk to us when we want them to be quiet. You know, the door is ajar, the door is ajar, you know? One year I took this young man up in the mountains, wilderness country, and uh, we were going to go spot in some elk. And I put him on a trail. I, I told this young man, you sit right here, be patient, wait 30 minutes. I'm going to walk down the trail, and then I'm going to turn around, I'm going to come back. See, I just want him to be alone to see if he could maybe hear God touch him in a very special way. Well, I went down the trail and I could see that the elk had not crossed the, the trail because there were no tracks on there. There was fresh dirt. So I figured they're still behind me. We had seen them below. So I'll, I'll turn around and I'll go back. Well, as soon as I got back in the same vicinity as where I had left this young boy off, there was elk all over. They were just busting through the trees. And I thought, ah, oh, this is great. He got to see some elk for the very first time. I got back to where I left him sitting. You know what I found? An empty pop tin. And an empty and, and a uh, unwrapped candy bar just laying on the ground where he had been, and that was it. No boy, he was gone. So I picked up the remains of uh, his snack, and I found him later. And I said, "Did you see the elk?" And he goes, "No." I said, "Well, how long did you sit there?" He goes, "Well, it seemed like forever. <laughs> He'd only been there maybe five or ten minutes, just long enough to slurp down the pop and eat a candy bar." See, there's that barrier of being alone and still before God. Why? Well, because it feels unproductive, doesn't it? You're not doing a thing. You're just being silent. There's nobody to talk to. You're just alone with God and it can be a very, very scary place. And I believe that it was true for Elijah for a moment. Look at verse 10. And when the word of the Lord came to him, God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And and, and Elijah replied, well, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, Elijah said. And now they are trying to kill me as well. You see, when we make an attempt to get alone with God in real solitude, we are going to experience what I call a certain apprehension. It's going to be scary as we enter into that solitary place and time. Why? Because we are without people to talk to. There are no books to read. There is no TV to distract us. There are no phone calls to make. And what happens is it creates in us an inner chaos. And I believe that's what happened to Elijah here. See, at first, this this inner chaos seems distracting and confusing. And we can hardly wait to get busy again. That's what happened to this teenager on the mountain. He had to be doing something. It was way too quiet. And that's what happened to Elijah when he got alone. Notice what he said. He said, Lord, I've been zealous for you. But my Jewish brothers, look at them. They've rejected your covenant. They've desecrated your altars. They've even put to death your servants. And there's nobody left except for me. Boy, had he lost perspective or what? The outer noise created the inner chaos. And he thought he was alone in this project that God had for him. But not at all. No, not at all. Let's read on. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire 
but the Lord was not in that as well. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Notice Elijah's response. He heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. He was in the presence of God. He heard that still, small voice. You see, Elijah didn't encounter God in the, in, in the fire or in the wind or the earthquake, but only in that gentle voice. And I believe that it was at that point that Elijah began to become attentive, attentive to what God really had for him, who he needed to be and where he needed to go. Now, if you read on, we're not going to take time this morning, but if you read on, you're going to find out that Elijah, the inner chaos is still going on inside this dear man's heart. He still thinks he's the only one left alone, but God reminds him, no, I've got 7,000 other saints out there to do my work. And Elijah, I'm going to send you back the way you came. You know, this running is going to be turned around and you're going to walk right back into the face of death because I've got a different plan for you. And Elijah heard that voice, he heard his calling, and he returned. Now, what is it exactly that God is calling you and I to in 1996? Well, I believe our Lord was asked that question in a roundabout way. The Pharisees, always trying to trick Jesus, asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Remember that? Now, if I was to ask a question like that, it would be more like this. It would be, Lord... I know there's got to be a lot of great commandments out there, but if there's one thing you don't want me to miss, you tell me what it is, and I'll walk in that direction. I'll move towards that commandment. You remember what the Lord said? What the greatest commandment was? He said, intimacy with God. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second commandment is like that, to love your neighbor as well. You see, that's intimacy, and that's love, and that's what God, I believe, is calling each and every one of us in here to 1996. You see, Jesus understood that that knowing God was far more important than knowing about Him. I don't know what 1996 is going to hold for you, but my guess is there's going to be lots of outer noise, lots of distractions. Some of us are going to get chased by the Jezebels of this world. Others of us will be chased by our own distractions, our own drivenness. We will stay so preoccupied with life that we will never get quiet before God so that those inner noises will get stirred up. But you see, that's what Jesus wants. That's what God wanted from Elijah. Start spilling your guts here, Elijah. What is it that exactly causes this anxiety and fear? Let me know because that's the God that I am, that I want to heal you. I want to touch you with my presence and with my voice and move you on to what God has in store for you in 1996. So you and I need this spiritual discipline of solitude, but it does not come easy. Well, how can 1996 be genuinely new for you? Well, I believe that you're going to have to make a commitment to be alone with God. You're going to have to find a cave. You're going to have to find a rock, a park bench, the green belt, a mountain, a stream, a river, the desert, you're going to have to go out there and just get alone with God. Intuitively, I believe that we know that that's the most important thing we can do, but really the hardest thing to do, isn't it? In closing, let me just give you four quick hints on how to begin this process. First of all, pray that God will give you the, the desire 
for some of you in here, that you, maybe that doesn't even connect with you this morning. The last thing you want to do is go off and be alone and be quiet. But if you pray for God to give you this desire, buckle up, hang on to your pants, because he's going to take you into that place. But you might have to have a crashing encounter, as I did, to get there. But believe me, you'll never, ever look back with regret. Secondly, it's so hard to do, you need to schedule it. You need to be realistic about what it's going to cost you. It's like anything important in our lives, you've got to get it on your calendar, all right? Set aside a time. Be realistic. Some of us in here can only handle five or ten minutes at first. Others of you are ready for maybe an hour a day, a half a day a week, maybe even a whole week, one time in a year, you might get alone with God. Thirdly, don't be discouraged by the distractions, that inner chaos that's going to be created when you get alone and quiet with God. Instead, turn those that inner chaos into a prayer. This happened to me here about three weeks ago. I got this little study set up, and my, and my son, who's gone away to college, I have it set up in the basement. So when everybody's cleared out, it is a little cave for me. And I got alone with God here about three weeks ago, and all of a sudden, these inner distractions and temptations just started flooding my heart and my, and my mind. The one thing that was on my mind was this, uh, I've got this uh, sheetrock problem. We had a water leak, you know, in our basement, and the sheetrock in this one section was coming down. And we had company coming for Christmas. And so I'm in there trying to be quiet with God. And all I can think about is pounding nails and putting sheetrock up. So finally I said, okay, God, that's it. Let's talk about the sheetrock. So I started talking to God about the sheetrock. I said, it's in your hands. I don't know if it's going to get done. You want me to spend time with you? I'll do it and I'll let that go. Now, let's move on. So we kept moving. Well, you know what happened? Two days later, my youngest son, who I did not prod or pay off to, to help, got in the, in the basement and he tore down the sheetrock and got it ready for the rest of that preparation of fixing that roof. Give those inner distractions away to God. He'll take care of it. And finally, when you can't fit in that time, when you, when you lose a time with God, don't, don't kick yourself. Don't feel guilty. Just look forward to the next time you get with the Lord. You see, if if we make this spiritual discipline, if we turn it into something that's legalistic, then it's just going to be another set of duties and regulations to to try to uh, maintain. It'll, it'll wear us out. It'll kill us. But when you start getting in love with God, I guarantee it, you will start looking for more and more times to do that. And you know what, fellas? You'll even turn off the old NFL football because you'll miss not having that time with God. Enter into 1996, being quiet and still before our Maker. It's simple, though not easy, but it is a way of freeing us from the slavery of preoccupation and our occupations. It's a way for us to begin the new year listening to a voice that makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, I I have no idea what, what your people are thinking this morning as we are bowed in prayer, but I know that 95 could have been very good for some of us and could have been awfully bad for others. My prayer is that 96 would look different. Not that we wouldn't still have the good or the bad times, but that it would be different because we would spend time alone with you. In Christ's name, amen.